The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing and the week ahead in stocks. I'd say happy Monday, except that it's a miserable day on Wall Street following the past miserable week. The Dow Jones Industrials were down about 650 points this morning, or 1.8%, and the other major averages are following suit. COVID is resurgent, the Biden spending plan seems dead, and for good measure, the Fed is planning to drain liquidity from the markets and raise interest rates next year. How much better can it get? Today's guest, Savita Subramanian, head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy at Bank of, at Bank of America Global Research, and Barron's reporter Nick Jasinski are going to explain what all of this means. At least I hope they are. So welcome, Savita and Nick. And so glad you could join me today on Barron's Live. Hi, Lauren. Great to be here. Wonderful. So, Savita, with that prelude, let's um, <laughs> let's talk about what's going on in the market. We titled this call the 2022 Market Outlook, but I think we first need to address what is happening at the tail end of 2021. So what do you think is driving this sell-off? Are there technical factors behind it in addition to fundamental factors? What's behind it all? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Lauren. And I think really what's what's happening right now is something that we were expecting to see over the next 12 months, which is really just volatility around continued uncertainty. I think, you know, today what's driving the market lower is uncertainty around Omicron and how that really affects the, the reopening, um, you know, kind of theme that we've all been talking about for you know, a couple of years now um, that has really been more of a fits and starts recovery rather than a full-blown recovery. Um, and then on top of that, we have some risks around the infrastructure package, which I think is sending some of the more cyclical areas of the market lower. Um, for example, industrials, financials, we're seeing some of those companies, um, you know, take the market lower. Uh, energy is also, is also um, not doing particularly well today. So I think what we're seeing is a little bit of a cyclical unwind around fears of, uh, of you know, Omicron being uh, a bigger threat to the economy than was expected, as well as potential for the blockage of the Build Back Better bill. Now, here's our take. A, a lot of this is just removing some of the froth in the market. And what we pointed out in our outlook for 2022 is that, you know, the market was essentially priced for perfection. And we don't know if we're going to get that over the next 12 months. We have a lot of risks to deal with on top of infrastructure as well as um, COVID, which are the Fed and, you know, potential tightening of monetary policy. Um, we've got an environment where margins are at peak levels, but inflation is starting to, uh, you know, proved to be a little bit more painful and sticky than we were anticipating. So lots of other factors that I think could, could you know, continue to pose threats to the market as we progress towards the uh, end of next year. I was interested in what you said, that this is what you expected to play out over the next 12 months, and yet mm -hmm. it seems to be 
playing out over the current month. <laughs> right. So does that mean investors should buy the dip? Does it mean they should take money off the table? Should they just sit tight? How do you recommend that people play this? Is this all front running or front loading uh, the trouble we expect to see next year? Will yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that, you know, our, our forecast for next year, our, our price target for, you know, December 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern time, 2022 <laughs> is, is 4,600. So, you know, I mean, really what we're looking for, we're kind of neutral on the overall S&P, but I think the internals of the market could be much more interesting. So our advice is don't shed your entire exposure to equities, but pick your spots because, the easy money from just buying the index might be behind us and we're going to be in a much more nuanced world. So our view is, okay, look for areas of the economy that'll benefit from maybe stickier inflation. And we do like energy. So I think that's one sector where I would buy the dip in some of these higher quality energy companies with a stable dividend. Um, we do like areas of the market that are driven by a, a potential capex cycle. And I don't think it's all dependent on build back better. I think that companies are likely to reinvest their money, um, you know, outside of just the government. So I think there are pockets of financials, energy, even industrials, where you should strategically look for opportunities where they've sold off on this risk, but are, are potentially longer term winners uh, in an environment where the economy continues to work. What I would what I would avoid at this point are buying some of the more expensive defensive areas of the market or even technology, um, some of the high growth technology stocks. I think those are areas of the market that are potentially hurt harder by a rising discount rate and um, you know rising bond yields, um, potential Fed tightening. So those are areas of the market that we would avoid. So what kinds of things are you screening for from a quantitative perspective, since that's one of your hats? Yeah, I'm a data, data-driven person. And I think that the factors that are likely to be the most important over the next 12 months, because think about what's happening. We're getting some inflation, but the Fed is also telling us that they're likely to, to, to hike interest rates pretty meaningfully over the next couple of years. So what that means is that Inflation is likely to hurt fixed income areas of the market, but will benefit equities because earnings are nominal. But within the equity market, what you want to look for are companies that benefit from inflation cycles. So these are not necessarily consumer companies, but they're more energy, financials, industrials. And then from the perspective of a tightening Fed, I would look for free cash flow generating companies. I, would, I think that cash is essentially one of the most important attributes in the early stages of a Fed tightening cycle. In fact, in all of our quant work, we've found that free cash flow yield is the best performing value factor during the first year of a Fed tightening cycle. And it sounds like we're going to get the first year of a Fed tightening cycle in 2022. So that would be our take is focus on free cash flow yield, focus on companies that could benefit from higher inflation, which is something we haven't seen for a very long time. So our view is leadership is likely to be pretty different over the next 12 months than what we've seen over the last 10 years. Certainly sounds that way. Part of your forecast calls for 13% dividend growth. And that's a lot of growth coming from income. <laughs> what makes you think companies are going to be so generous with their money next year? Well, a couple of things. So I, I think that one of the reasons we're, we're not bearish on equities is that corporate balance sheets are actually pretty 
uh, pretty healthy at this point. And you know, coming out of a recession, normally corporates and consumers are more levered than they are today. But I think that one of the um, the areas that companies can you know continue to court investors with is just cash return. And I think last year, when we look at what happened from an earnings growth versus a dividend growth perspective, companies saw monstrous earnings growth, or rather this year, 2021. So in 2021, we've seen about 50% earnings growth, but only about 20% dividend growth. And normally companies grow their dividends in lockstep with their earnings. So our view is there's a little bit of catch up to be done as companies just continue to increase their payout ratios, continue to court dividend oriented investors. And then when you think about the investment landscape today, what we saw during COVID was a, an excessive number of early retirees, right? People who made their numbers from an asset gain perspective or you know, just got tired of working during this really difficult period and are now shifting towards an orientation of looking for income rather than capital appreciation. So our view is if you're a company in the S&P that doesn't pay a dividend, you're basically cutting yourself off from a big and growing group of investors. And these are companies where we're going to see initiations of dividends. And then for companies that kind of, you know, didn't necessarily keep up their dividend growth with their earnings growth this year, we think they're going to play catch up and really meaningfully increase their dividends. Furthermore, and again, this goes back to the to the bill, um, you know, to politics and policy. But if you think about what um, what uh, what the um, the current funding part of the funding for infrastructure spend would be taxing share buybacks. So we think that's another theme where companies might be more incented to switch from buying back shares to growing their dividends if they're going to be marginally taxed a little bit higher for uh, for buybacks. That makes a lot of sense. Before we get to Nick, and I promise you, Nick, I've got some questions for you. I just wanted to ask you, Savita, with your emphasis on free cash flow and dividend payments, this would seem to leave out a lot of smaller, younger companies, IPO companies, mm -hmm. um, you know, biotechs that don't yet generate cash or have products. What does it do to that whole speculative part of the market? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are small caps that are going to do really well in 2022. And then there are some that are not. So it's really, a, um, you know, a stock pickers market. I, I think the areas you really want to go to within the small cap spectrum are companies that will benefit from a continued recovery, a continued, albeit slower reopening. Um, but on the flip side, when you look at the massive new issuance in healthcare and technology and the IPO pipeline. Um, you know, I think that's an area that's getting really saturated. I mean, what's interesting is that if you look at today's number of IPOs and new issuance versus 2000, very similar. And we all know what happened after 2000 to some of these speculative tech stocks. So I think today what we need to do is really think about being selective, looking for companies that aren't going to be hurt by a rising cost of capital. Um, a lot of these IPOs and private equity themes have thrived in an environment where interest rates have been falling. You know, real rates are now negative. I mean, it's it, we're in a really different world than um, than what's what's sort of quote unquote normal. So I think as we move to an environment where rates slowly rise and we start to see a you know kind of normalcy building, that might not be as good for some of these more more growthy, speculative, longer duration types of uh, smaller companies. Yet another difference with 2021. Absolutely. So 
I want to bring Nick into the discussion and I want to remind our listeners that we're going to take questions at the end of the call. So please type in questions and we'll save some time for them. So Nick, you wrote our cover story this past weekend, sizing up the outlook for 2022 for the economy, the stock market, the bond market, and even commodities and real estate. You packed an awful lot in there. It was a terrific story. Can you give us some of the highlights, please? Sure. So Savita just hit a lot of the key points there in her remarks, but I'll try to hopefully expand on that a bit. Um, first of all, zooming out, the, the macro backdrop is a still growing U.S. economy. Same goes for many economies around the world, the exception of notably China, possibly, um, but everywhere at a slower pace than this year. That's still a good environment for most businesses to be able to increase their revenues and profits, just not as quickly as in 2021. Um, to me, the bottom line for investors in financial assets next year it will be the impact of inflation and interest rates on valuations and prices and and bond yields as well. Um, mo most investors are familiar with the concept of a discounted cash flow model. It's a method of valuing an asset that takes into account all the future forecasted cash flows of a company and discounts them back to the present. Um, and the problem with that is when you plug in a higher discount rate, the future earnings are worth less today than under a lower discount rate. So for a stock with most of its earnings in the far future, that makes it more sensitive to changes in interest rates than one that's a more steady and, and mature business that's not growing as fast necessarily. Um, so for an expensive stock market like we have today, that means that there should be some pressure on price to earnings multiples for a lot of stocks, especially the ones that are more sensitive to those future earnings. And I know we'll get into sectors a little bit more later in the call, but basically that means that there's likely to be more value under the surface than at the index level next year, as Savita noted. Um, Wall Street price targets for the S&P 500 next year generally call for mid-single digit returns. Savita is a little bit below that. Um, but generally speaking, you want companies that generate more cash today than in the future and companies that can increase their earnings faster than their multiples could potentially contract next year. Um, in the bond market, inflation eats away at the real yield or the inflation adjusted yield and bond prices should move down as interest rates increase. So you're not looking for any great returns from the bond market next year. Um, and a lot of investors are looking to other ways of generating yield in 2022, but those carry more risk and there's, there's plenty more on that in the, in the outlook issue. Um, and I'll just very quickly mention commodities and real estate. Those are both real assets, infrastructure as well, which can help work against inflation. When there's inflation, you can think of that as if your, your dollars are becoming less valuable. So a ton of copper or an ounce of gold is worth more dollars when the currency is worth less. So there are some recommendations also in the issue about how to use real assets like real estate or, or commodities as an inflation hedge next year. But that's as part of a more diversified portfolio. It's an excellent story and an excellent summary, I must say. I wanted to ask you, Nick, you talked to a lot of people on Wall Street for the story, economists, market strategists, people who follow the Fed and so forth. What was the most surprising thing you heard? Um, that's a good question. I think the the um, just conviction that we're in this lower for longer world, but yeah, we're going to have interest rates rise a little bit next year. But even if we go from the Fed funds target of a quarter of a percentage point at the high end to 1% at the high end, that's still an, the absolute yield or absolute rate is still very low. Um, and, they, and the real yield is negative once you consider And the real yield is negative. So it's not like we're going to go back to um, the high interest rates of the 1980s or even the, the valuations on stocks that we've seen 15 years ago or 20 years ago. People expect that, that just with the amount of, of uh, money being printed and how low rates are, 
um, valuations are going to stay high elevated to re relative to their own history, um, even if they may come down a bit from last year. Good point. So I want to go back to sectors, which we talked about earlier. Savita, I mm -hmm. took a look at your comments in Nick's story. And as you mentioned, you favor energy and financials and even healthcare. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about your thinking behind these sectors. Absolutely. So I think it really dovetails with, uh, with Nick's comments about inflation and yield. So if you think about bonds, bond fixed income yields are just that they're fixed, but equities earnings are nominal. So what you want to do is buy companies in sectors that benefit from inflation and have a growing income stream, because I think that's really the scarce resource is inflation protected yield. And when you look at all three of the sectors, you mentioned financials, um, energy and healthcare, each of these sectors has a low payout ratio relative to history. So they have a lot of room to raise dividends. Um, energy is actually at a point where it's increasing its free cash flow for you know, the first time in a very, very long time. And we are bullish on oil. We think that oil prices have more upside risk as we move from you know, stay home to reopening, as we start to see business travel um, you know, increase over the next 12 months. Um, so assuming Omicron isn't gonna throw us back at home into a 2020 type of environment, we think that there's more upside pressure to oil, there's more upside pressure to uh, inflation. And where investors should seek income is an inflation protected assets. And those would be, you know, to Nick's point, real assets like um, real estate uh, commodities, but also within the equity market, we like uh, the sectors that I just mentioned. And then when you think about the Fed going from zero on cash yields to something above 2% in over the next couple of years, that makes cash a heck of a lot more rewarding. And I think where investors are going to look is for companies that are returning more cash to investors um, in inflationary environments. We've found that dividend growth and dividend yield tend to do a lot better than uh, than fixed income and other areas of the market. So those would be the sectors where we find that sort of optimal combination of inflation protection as well as growing income streams. Healthcare, I also think- Can, is I, can I just go back oh. for a minute to oil? How high do you think oil prices are gonna go? Well, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, our commodity team had a, a, a price target of 100, but then Omicron hit and, you know, that calls into question the, the, the sort of the clean trajectory. Exactly, and business travel. I mean, we no, nobody's going anywhere right now. Um, so, so the big question is, you know, are we going back into a real, you know, kind of are we are we are we slowing down this reopening process or are we just sort of is this a little bit of a hiccup in a trajectory to some level of normalcy? And our view is, you know, this is this is this is sort of the new normal is that we have this these little, um, you know, bouts of, uh, of of potential risk around healthcare, But in general, we're, we're forecasting that the economy grows, that we, we see travel and, and service economies pick up rather than deteriorate. And in that backdrop, we think that oil demand will, will continue to remain on an acceleration bias. I think the other side to oil is supply. And I think what's really interesting there is that you're, you're actually seeing capital being choked off to oil companies from, you know, from the idea that, you know, we want to live in a cleaner world with less emissions. 
So from a supply demand perspective, there's something really interesting going on within um, the oil space where you've got limited supply from, you know, kind of um, environmental pressures. And, you know, oil companies are less likely to just turn on their, um, their pipes and, and flood the world with oil in an environment where nobody really wants them to. And then you've got increasing demand as we slowly reopen the economies and start to travel again, which we expect to see next year. If that doesn't happen, obviously, we would change our, our outlook pretty meaningfully. Let's hope it does. You yep. mentioned healthcare. Can you just give us a sense or two on that? What's the yeah. So healthcare is a really interesting conundrum. Healthcare is a sector that offers, large cap healthcare in particular, offers great growth, stable earnings. This is a sector that literally saved the world in 2020. And yet healthcare companies lagged the market for 2021 by a huge margin. They're and not I think much thanks for saving the world, are they? Exactly. And I think that the, that the reasons for not owning healthcare aren't necessarily good ones. So we hear a lot about regulatory risk around the healthcare sector. But when you think about it, we haven't heard that much negative rhetoric around healthcare, yet the sector never really got out of the penalty box since, you know, the Hillary Clinton tweet back in gosh, that was, you know, now it was probably eight years ago. Long so, time ago. Yes, a very long time ago. So I think that um, there are more risks than than upside priced into the sector right now. Um, this is a sector with great dividend growth potential. It's a sector with stable earnings. We think that companies and consumers are going to spend more on healthcare going forward than they had in the past. I mean, we just got out of a global pandemic. I think there's some some sort of recency bias where you're going to pay more attention to healthcare and and um, you know kind of prioritize that over other areas in the years to come. Not to mention the discretionary spending on healthcare that we all put off because we couldn't uh, you know leave our homes. So I think it's a it's a sector where you get a lot more growth at a much more reasonable price than other areas of the market, like, you know, small cap biotech or um, even, you know, big tech companies where you're paying a lot more for growth than you are in the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think you're right. We are going to be thinking a lot more about health. So, Nick, you cover telecom and media stocks as your, I like to say, your day job at Barron's in addition to everything else that you do. What's the outlook for these sectors next year? Yeah, I think I have a lot of day jobs here at Barron's. Um, so tele telecom stocks, um, we'll do telecom first and then media. Telecom stocks were a bit of a haven during 2020, um, but this year they've really taken it on the chin. And Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, Charter, all these stocks are, are down this year versus a 25% return for the S&P 500. So it's a big difference. Um, and that really has to do with shifting expectations for subscriber growth. Um, which in 2020 boomed for the entire telecom industry, um, both home internet and, and wireless. And that had some to do with stimulus checks and other emergency programs. But first and foremost, it was driven by this shift to work from home and everyone sitting on their couch binging Netflix. Um, and it was just a good time to upgrade your home internet service or your phone plan. Um, now, and especially next year, that tailwind is gone. Analysts are expecting much lower overall industry subscriber growth in 2022. And we already saw in the third quarter of this year that, that it was slowing um, for cable in particular. And then at the same time, you have some concerns about growing competition in what's a pretty concentrated industry where competition is not really first in, in most uh, telecom investors' minds. Um, every one of those companies I mentioned and others in addition to that are investing heavily in their wireless 5G or 
wired cable and fiber optic networks. And so the outlook overall is for more investment dollars, that's more spending, chasing a smaller pie of industry subscriber growth. Um, and something has to give here. The telecom companies themselves like to argue that they can continue growing profits at a similar rate to last year, despite slower subscriber growth because of economies of scale and pushing customers to higher tier plans that are more profitable. But I would say that the, the burden of proof is on Verizon and Comcast and AT&T and Charter to show that next year. Um, so these stocks are a lot cheaper than they were before, but there's considerable uncertainty about what the next year or two of growth looks like. Um, in media, the story is, of course, about streaming services and streaming growth. And that's Disney, Viacom, NBC, WarnerMedia. Everyone except for Sony pretty much has a, has a, uh, is all in on streaming. Um, and then this ties back to our previous discussion about the impact of higher discount rates on valuations. And that's most of these services are still in heavy investment mode with many years of, of uh, losses ahead of them before the services break even once they re reach this critical mass of subscribers globally. And for some of them, like Disney Plus, that might not be until 2024, 2025. Um, so subscriber growth will continue to be a focus next year. But I think that profitability might be a bigger part of the conversation too, when cash becomes more valuable. Um, you want to be earning that cash as opposed to spending it. Um, for TV, cable TV, it should be a pretty good year for advertising. Just continued economic recovery. You also have some political ad spending before the midterm elections. And then in the movie theater business, I would say things remain in flux. Um, this past weekend, Spider-Man No Way Home, the latest movie in the Spider-Man franchise, just set a pandemic era box office record, but it's still an open question how consumer habits continue to evolve and um, also which movies studios choose to bring to market. Um, so it's still, it, there's no there's no fat pitch in, in media either for 2022. But streaming, it's a highly competitive market too now, isn't it? It is, but I think that um, investors certainly have come around to understanding that it's not a winner-take-all market, but People will subscribe to Netflix and HBO and Peacock all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some questions about churn and people coming on and off of those subscriptions, but it's not that there's one one Netflix and people will cancel everything else. But I think but, the, the, street, the streaming wars competition aspect of it is less important than it was a couple of years ago. All right. Well, thanks for that summary. That was very useful. I want to close by taking a look at the Federal Reserve, and then we'll go to some listener questions. The Fed could hold a lot of the cards next year. Its actions are likely to have a big impact on the market. Savita, what do you see ahead for the Fed? They've kind of telegraphed what they're going to do. Do you believe them? Yeah, I do. I mean, unless things dramatically change, I think we're in an environment where things look a lot different than they have over, again, the last 10 plus years. Um, so we're going to be in a a slow shift from, you know, accelerating liquidity to decelerating liquidity and, and you know, the spigot being slowly turned off uh, in terms of central bank spending. Now, I, I think that what that does is it could change the whole there is no alternative or Tina argument for stocks because all of a sudden cash yields will rival the S&P 500's 1.3% dividend yield. And if the 10-year hits 2% by the end of next year, which is our house view, then, you know, the, the Tina argument isn't necessarily as compelling as it was in an environment where the S&P's dividend yield massively eclipsed uh, other, other income-oriented asset classes. So I think the Fed just makes things a little bit tougher for equities to continue to crush it systematically. 
And let's look at fiscal policy for a moment. Mm -hmm. We just heard Joe Manchin say he would not vote for the Build Back Better plan this Sunday. What are the consequences for the economy if this big spending plan doesn't advance? You know, I think it's a hit, but it's not it's not like the CapEx story is over. And and one of the things that we've noticed is that a lot of companies in the you know private, the, the corporate sector is actually amping up their planned CapEx spending because of the fact that, A, we haven't had a real CapEx cycle in decades. B, stuff is really, really old in the U.S. And, you know, we need kind of a, a refurbishment spending cycle. And then, you know, finally, we're, we're seeing an environment where the cost of labor is actually spurring automation spend. So when you think about companies that are more labor intensive, if all of a sudden their cost of labor goes up, we found a very strong relationship between wage inflation and automation spend. So I think all of those are likely to um, to to really uh, show up in, in the next couple of years and play through into a real business investment cycle. So the Build Back Better program is certainly positive for the economy, but it's not the only source of business investment and capital spending. I think that that's a theme that could continue even without uh, without a, a strong fiscal policy or a strong fiscal package. All right, thanks. I want to go to some listener questions which have been building up. John asks, is there going to be a Christmas rally? We're running out of time <laughs> for a Christmas rally. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I don't bet on seasonality. I think it's it works when it does and it does what it doesn't. So I would say um, stay true to, you know, looking for safe sources of income. Fair enough. So Bob notes that from April 2020 through September 21, the Fed, the Federal Reserve injected an astonishing amount of stimulus into the U.S. economy. And I won't disagree with that. And it seems it might not be matched for years or even decades. How much of a headwind do you think this poses for the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the Russell 2000? Huge headwind. I mean, this is one of the reasons that we are relatively cautious on stocks. The second derivative change of liquidity has been the biggest source of gains in the equity market. And as that goes negative, as we start to see liquidity um, being sopped up, we think that that is a reason to be less bullish on equities and more bullish on other areas of the economy. So if you are looking to shift the asset allocation within your portfolio, given fears of this headwind, where do you go? So I would go, I would basically do the opposite of everything that's worked over the last 10 years. I would buy small cap value. Um, I mean, think about it. Large cap growth was the, the best performing area of the market. I think small cap value is, is really inexpensive and could benefit from a continued cyclical recovery. I would look for real assets over financial assets because essentially what the Fed did was create um, asset inflation, but not real inflation. And I think we're moving to an environment where that's shifting very, very quickly. Um, so I would focus on economically sensitive companies that benefit from real infl inflation rather than, you know, growthy long duration stocks that have benefited from a falling cost of capital. I just learned, I want to mention um, banks here, which, which um, Savita touched on a yes. little bit earlier, but that was, that was the overall most popular pick among the uh, strategists and investors I spoke with um, for 2022. Those are, they fit a lot of the, the cheaper valuations, um, lots of cash on balance sheets, potential for, for dividend and buyback growth next year. 
but also banks are really one of the only areas of the economy where higher interest rates are actually in their day-to-day -day business. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's true. The amount that they earn on their bread and butter business of extending loans will increase with higher interest rates. It's not just that they need to pay more uh, interest on their outstanding borrowings, but they actually earn that higher interest. So, so banks are a pretty good place for 2022 in my view. I'm glad you brought that up. Thanks, Nick. So Savita Hal asks, why are longer term yields so low if inflation is a lasting risk? And I think that's a question a lot of us have. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I think one of the reasons is that that rates are even lower elsewhere. So it's, you know, the continued global demand for income keeps, uh, keeps yields in the U.S. relatively capped. Um, so, you know, we live in a global economy. We need to watch what other central banks are doing. Um, but again, when you think about the, the trajectory, we're in an environment where real rates are negative in the U.S. and we just accept this as normal. I don't think that's normal. And I think we're at a point where that will slowly resolve itself. Um, but what it involves is the world moving from easy money to a more normal environment. Okay, um, we have another question about the Fed. We have a lot of questions about the Fed, but I'll close this one. This is from Bob, who notes that six months ago, the Fed didn't speak of any interest rate hikes or tapering. And now it's suggesting possibly eight quarter point hikes over the next two years. He concludes that the Fed doesn't have a clue about inflation or growth. He's not the only one to conclude as much. Why do you believe, he asks, that we'll see such interest rate hikes over two years? Well, I think that's a really good question. I'd be curious, Nick's, curious to hear Nick's point of view, but I think that really what the Fed is, is tasked with right now is dealing with an environment where inflation trends are showing up to be stickier than what they were expecting. And, you know, to, to Bob's point, I think the, the question is, if the Fed spent 10 years trying to engineer inflation and we, we, we finally got it with a global pandemic and fiscal stimulus, Who's to say the Fed's going to be able to navigate controlling inflation? So that's what I worry about, is that we are at a point where we're putting a lot of faith in the Fed to keep things going. And, um, you know, it is it is a bit disconcerting to see the the sort of the volatility around forecasts over the last year. Well, this may also explain the volatility in the market at the moment. Absolutely. So, Nick, you were put on the spot and I'll continue the theme. Why should we believe the Fed? Sure. So I think the, um, the the questioner is right to to uh, be skeptical of that exact eight quarter point hikes. I, I would pay less attention to the, the specific number of hikes and what exactly the rate will be, and more on the what is the focus of the Fed now. And I think that for a lot of the past eighteen months, that has been on as a dual mandate, price stability, and low unemployment. And I think the focus for a lot of the last eighteen months was on achieving low unemployment. We're at a very low unemployment rate, even if the labor participation rate it hasn't increased to what it was before the pandemic. And it seems that now the, the pivot has been to a greater focus on getting inflation under control on that price stability part of the mandate. So whether that means exactly eight hikes or seven or nine, I think that's less important than the, the overall focus of the Fed now, which is to get inflation under control. And what does that mean? That means tighter policy. So directionally, I think for an investor, you can be confident in that. That's the focus of the Fed now. Um, even if the exact number of hikes is, is still will will be determined between now and then. Very well said. Mm -hmm. Savita, Jim has a question, and I don't know if you can answer this as a technician's question, 
where is key support for the NASDAQ? What's the key support level? So we don't have a forecast on the NASDAQ. And I, I have to say, I'm not a technician. I'm more of a quant slash fundamental strategist. But, um, you know, I think the NASDAQ is, is in a clear risk of more than a 10% correction at this point because the nasdaq is basically the equivalent of a long duration bond it's got you know a ton of it's basically comprised of big growth companies that have huge payoff way out in the future and if we see any sort of change in the discount rate as as nick pointed out earlier if the the discount rate starts to increase slowly that is more pain for the nasdaq than for most of the other indices that are, you know, not as long duration and tech and growth heavy. So I think a 10% correction is well within um, the, uh, you know, kind of the realm of possibilities for the NASDAQ over the next 12 months. Do you see a bear market, which would be a 20% or more drop at some point in the next 12 months? Well, I'll, I'll give you a bad answer, but I think it depends. And I think it depends on a number of things. It depends on Omicron. So if Omicron throws us back into 2020, like, uh, environment, then yes, bear market is, is is certainly possible. I think if we're in an environment where the Fed is forced to hike even faster than what they have um, have already indicated because of inflationary pressures, that could be enough to throw us into a bear market. Um, I think certain parts of the economy and certain parts of the market could enter bear territory. And I worry the most about long duration tech companies that have, again, thrived on this very low cost of capital environment. But for the overall S&P and for the overall indices, I think the, the benefit is that we've still got a cash rich consumer, we've still got a cash rich corporate sector. So the balance sheet risk isn't necessarily as prevalent as it normally is as, at, when you're at a point, um, you know, when you're coming out of, a, of a, an economic recession. That's what makes me feel a little bit better. Because you could argue that the balance sheet risk has been switched to government from the private sector. Exactly. The government is holding the bag. And how does that end? I don't think I don't know how it ends for the government. But historically, when we've seen twin deficits creep up, we looked at, you know, kind of how markets did coming out of that. And markets actually had a relatively benign, um, you know, positive outcome after periods of, of great government indebtedness, because normally what happens is the economy grows faster than government debt. So if that happens, we're fine. If it doesn't, then that's a reason to worry. Well, I'm going to close it on the optimistic note today. And let's hope <laughs> we're fine. I want to thank you both. It's been a very illuminating call. Really appreciate your comments. And I Thanks, want to Lauren. thank you. Thanks, Savita. Uh, thanks. Great to be here. Glad to have you. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in as well. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the topic is small cap tech companies. My colleague, Eric Savitz, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, will speak with Jeffrey Myers, Portfolio Manager of Cobia Capital, about some of Jeff's favorite small cap tech names. So that's it for today. Thank you, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.